Thank you, Daniel and Micah, for leading this morning. I appreciate this new song. I remember Evanescence. I just wanted to say hi to the, uh, the, the back row, like the way back row, like the way in the shade over there. It feels like you're 100 yards away, but it's all good. I know that's the only shady spot. One thing I would say I'm looking forward to in this new location is that uh, the back row won't be that far away because there'll be, a, there'll be a wall and there'll be a parking lot. If you want to stay in the parking lot, that's fine, but <laughs> that is not our intent, okay? And there is still actually some room here. There's like a free bench right here, and there's some, there's some spots over here too if you want to come closer. I promise I won't bite. I don't promise not to spit. Um, and then I also just appreciate, yeah, I appreciated the new song. And I think it's, I think it's sometimes hard to uh, clap and look at the words. And so even with Build Your Kingdom here, if you, I'm really glad I'm not mic'd when I'm singing um, because I would say some funny things. I think I said flood this nation back um, a couple times uh, <laughs> because it's hard. It's hard to do all the words. Um, today... <laughs> Today we are starting in the book of Job, and it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to get kind of dark. Job is a book of suffering and disappointment um, and loss and about doubt and uncertainty. And there's going to be some questions as we're going through this, like why this book and why for this long? (laughs) And I wanted to, I wanted to address some of those questions. I think it's, I think this book is kind of an antidote to our our modern and postmodern situation. I know many people today deal with issues of mental and emotional health um, and things like depression and anxiety um, and disappointment and loss and anxiety. And so I think one of the reasons we do that, one one of the reasons why that happens is because we haven't been equipped well to confront um, difficult and challenging things like suffering and disappointment, and loss, and and frankly, death. And so I think this journey into this book is going to confront some things that are going to be difficult for us, but I think are very important because it does equip us um, with being able to confront some of these things. I have a friend whose father passed away recently, and they have a five-year-old daughter. And the five-year-old daughter was a part of all of the, was part of the um, journey and just kind of witnessing her grandfather's decline. And it was very painful uh, for the mom to see this happening. And yet she also realized it was a gift that she could give her daughter, um, that death, um, that suffering are um, kind of these necessary and integral aspects of what life is about. And so to have to confront those things at at age five um, wasn't actually a curse. Um, It was actually a gift. And so my prayer as we go through this book is that you wouldn't see it as a curse because it will be painful and it will be uncomfortable, but you would actually experience it as a gift. And that may not happen today. It may not happen tomorrow. It may not happen next week. Um, but my hope and prayer is that it would happen um, at some point um, is part of your journey in knowing God. Okay. Um, and there's nothing easy here. There's nothing straightforward in this book. I'm going to summarize some of the lessons for this book. For, for example, you could summarize this book in like three words or four words. God is in control. You could uh, just say... God is in control, and yet it does not do justice to what the book of Job is trying to do. 95% of it is poetry. You can summarize a lot of poems in a couple words, but there is a beauty in the tragedy, 
And again, one of my hopes is that not only would you see who God is, you would also recognize the beauty in Job's words in this dialogue that he has between him and his friends. Actually, one of our leaders described it as a rap battle, okay? It's a rap battle between Job and his three friends, and I hope you experience kind of the beauty and the, the melody um, from that dialogue, from that, uh, from that interaction. And then um, another thing that I would ask um, as you think about this book is to recognize there are probably going to be more questions that come out of reading it um, than answers. Okay, you will, you will come to this book with questions such as, why does God allow suffering? Um, and why does God allow evil? And I think those are absolutely important and crucial questions to our faith. And yet my, my hope, as, as you go through it, is not to expect that we'll be, there will be some conclusive answer. And in, in fact, if you, if you, you probably don't have that even now, some kind of conclusive answer because you're here today because you realize there may not be easy answers to that. Um, but I pray that you have some openness to see, hey, um, what could God do in the space of asking the question? There's something God does in the, in the experience of even asking the question. So I'd like you guys to, uh, to consider that, okay? And then today what we're going to focus on is one particular character who makes an appearance here in the first two chapters and then doesn't appear again. Okay, and I, I don't want to say he disappears, meaning like I think his presence is still very much experienced through the rest of this book, um, but, he, and he's, but he's a crucial figure, and that is the figure of Satan. Okay, so today we're going to spend time talking about Satan and the reality of the accuser. And I think he's an especially important person to focus on because he forms the backdrop of the story. He's the, he's the backstory of the story, um, and we get the privilege as a reader to know about the Satan, um, but no one else does, right? Job doesn't know about it as far as we can tell. Um, the friends don't know about him as far as we can tell. Um, but we, as the reader, get to know about the Satan, okay? And I'm saying I have the article above it, um, in front of it, and I'm going to explain why. So let's read. Uh, I'm going to read Job. I'm going to start with chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. And I actually won't spend that much time. I may not even read um, the rest of the chapter. I may read just uh, the first uh, half or so. So I'll just start with 1 through 6. This is Job, the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now, I just want to give some observations about this text um, from the very beginning. Um, there, are, there are numbers here. 
it, it numbers exactly how many sheep he has and camels. And I think it's fascinating. And as we looked at in our, in our first life group meeting this past week, it doesn't tell you how many servants. I have no idea why. I don't know why it doesn't tell you the number of servants, but it does tell you 7,000 sheep. And the picture I think the author of Job is trying to paint for us is that Job is a righteous man and he's rich. And those are actually kind of associated together. Being wealthy and being righteous have an association that this book is going to explore Okay, but those are important. And then, and then, of course, the first thing, if you'll notice from the very beginning, in the very first verse, is that Job is a blameless man, and he is upright. He fears God, and he turns away from evil. And I would say all four of those characteristics are synonyms with each other. They're all related and connected. Being upright, being blameless, fearing God, turning away from evil. Um, if I had to give some words for blameless, I would say his reputation was, he, has a, he had a fantastic reputation. And then upright means he lived up to his reputation. It was, it was like his, his life actually lived up to what he posted on Instagram. Okay? None of our lives do, but this man's life did. Um, because anything, any highlight reel that you saw, his life was absolutely consistent with it. Um, and then um, he fears God, and he turned away from evil. All those are consistent. And then you see an example of that in the number of uh, feasts that his family had. And it says his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And I'm not sure which day is his day. I think in our life group, we're like, you have seven sons. There must've been one son for every day of the week, which is a lot of feasting. That's a lot of feasting. That's nonstop feasting. Um, and at some point it looks like it did stop. So my guess is his day meant birthday, um, the birthday of the sons. In verse five, it says, and when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. And so Job's righteousness is also one that intercedes on behalf of others. Okay, so Job has a righteousness that intercedes on behalf of others. And that's going to be important in the rest of this book. Okay, so that's the first question, and what I would what I would just first um, what I would just say in comment to this is that there is clearly a sense of pride, and we're going to see later on how how explicitly so, but there is implicitly a sense of pride that God has in Job. Okay, that's and that's what's being set up here: how righteous and blameless He is. And so as, as we begin to talk in, and I'm really going to spend the rest of the time in verses six through 12, well, as we begin to talk here, I'm going to have three points that God allows his children to be targets, that the nature of the, the accuser is to attack mankind's character. And that lastly, unrighteousness infects others. Okay. So those are the three points. And so let's read verses six through, six through 12, where I'm going to be spending um, the rest of our time. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Satan, 
Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And so like I said, the first thing that I want to uh, to make a point about is that uh, God is not afraid to make his children targets. He's not afraid to make his children targets. And so the first thing that you're going to notice here is that this is a this is a completely different scene. We're cutting to a completely different scene than what just happened in verses 1 through 5. We're seeing the it could be the heavenly throne, but it, it actually doesn't that doesn't say. But you're looking at some kind of scene that is separate from what just happened with Job, and most likely it's invisible to this earthly stage. And we get this privileged glimpse backstage of what is going to be the backdrop of this entire book. And then in verse six, in verse six, it says, "Now there was a day when the sons of man came to present themselves before the Lord." And it sounds like. It sounds like a show, right? It sounds like a show. It sounds like a, like a, almost like a pageant, right? Where, where God is showing off his people. Um, and I think that's exactly what's happening. And it sounds like it, maybe it's arrogant on God's part to do this, but we do presentations all the time. Okay. As a people, we do presentations and we know that God also receives presentations or at least offerings because in Genesis four, God receives offerings. And so as a father, as a ruler, as a creator, he's interested in what's going on with creation. And as I said, any important ceremony that we do um, as a people, as human beings, is a kind of presentation. For instance, when I do a wedding, I say it is a privilege to present, to introduce for the very first time Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, right? There's a presentation there. So in everything, if you're proud of someone, you do a presentation of them. And so clearly in the context of this, of, this, uh, of this chapter, God is proud of the sons of men. Okay. Now, the question is, who are these sons of God? I'm sorry, I, I said sons of men. Sons of God. Who are these sons of God? It's not exactly clear. In Genesis uh, verse chapter 9, I think, or chapter 6, there is a reference to sons of men being Nephilim, these kind of giants. And so, and these, so these could be angels. These could be angels that we are um, discussing. And as God is presenting these angels, the fallen angel, Satan, comes to visit. And um, as I mentioned in our, in our life group meeting, it feels like a kind of a maleficent kind of scene where he kind of crashes the party. Um, and by the way, Satan is not a name. Satan is a title. Satan means adversary. Okay, it's a Hebrew word for adversary. It can also, and Hebrew has very few words, so the words have a lot of different meanings. Um, the, word the word for adversary can also mean accuser. And that's how I'm going to use it today. Satan as the accuser. Okay, um, and so when it says, in the same way like Christ, for instance, if you know Christ, Christ is actually not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title, okay? It means anointed one or Messiah. Um, that's what Christ means. So in the same way Christ is a, 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 a title, uh, you know, so is Satan as adversary or accuser. So Satan kind of crushes this party, and then God engages him first from where have you come. And this is like God to initiate the conversation and also ask what he's been up to. And the, the sense you get with God asking this question is the same sense um, kind of with our teenage sons. Um, they come home. We don't know where they've gone. <laughs> they left the house. They come back and you, and you say something like, so where have you come from? What, what have you been doing? Right? There's this like, what have you been up to? There's almost like a suspicion in this. Um, and then Satan answers from going to, going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And there's this sense here 
that number one, Satan wanders, and number two, he's probably up to no good. <laughs> okay, there's a sense of him seeking out. And you see that even in the New Testament, for example, in 1 Peter 5, where it says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So there is a sense from this passage, maybe taken from this passage in, in, from Peter, that Peter used to think about the adversary, Satan, as someone who's looking for someone to target. Okay? Um, and what's fascinating here is God, in response to what Satan says, says, have you considered my servant Job? He offers Job. Okay? So Satan's looking for someone. God is the one to offer him. And so this gets to where I'm saying God is not afraid to make some of his people targets. Okay? He's not afraid to make someone a target. And the first thing I would say, uh, okay, and then there's an accusation, and then essentially God says you can do whatever you want to him. And what we have here, and we don't know the, the outcome of it, but we have kind of a cosmic bet. Okay? This is the bet. Right? And I think the first thing I might respond that I've responded to this is this is tremendously insulting, right? This is tremendously insulting. Um, it's like a sports bet. There are two characters who are betting on the result of what this one person's going to do. And it's like, this is Job's life. <laughs> this is Job's life we're talking about. And now uh, God has basically offered him up as kind of this cosmic bet to see what would happen because uh, Job is, uh, God is interested in winning a bet. And I think it is, it is grandly insulting. Um, and I just want to also say that this is almost like what every guy's fantasy is. We love to indulge. Men love to indulge in hypotheticals. We love to, to do like train versus great white shark. Who would win? Um, and there's something just super interesting about the whole hypothetical situation, right? Except this is not a hypothetical, right? Men, we do it as a way of fantasizing, but this is for real. This is someone's life. But if you think about it more, have you, have you considered what happens in our own life? Hi, boys. <laughs> have you considered what happens in our own life and whether or not God is betting on the outcome of what you're doing today? Have you considered that perhaps... Um, God, and I'll just put Corinne on the spot. God was making a bet and saying, you know, how's Corinne going to do as she gives this sharing today about her story? You know, how is, how is that going to go over? You know, is she going to stumble or, you know what I mean? All those different things. And if you think about it, it's actually not insulting at all. <laughs> it's actually incredibly flattering that God would say, hey, you know what? I've got a champion and I'll put my champion up against whatever test you have for him. And I think that's what's happening here. On one hand, you could view it as grandly insulting. But on the other hand, if you think about it, God's saying, hey, you know what? I have such pride in my children that I'm willing to allow themselves to be targets against whatever accusation, against whatever attack that you want to throw at them. Because I believe and I trust in who I have created because they resemble me. Okay, And so I'd like you to consider that as you consider suffering and disappointment and hurt and pain that you've experienced. We actually have no idea what kind of bet that may be going on. 
All we know is that there may be a backstory that we have not been privileged to see. And God is not afraid to make a person a target. Okay? And on one hand, we can look at that as grandly insulting and revolting. But on the other hand, we can also see it as incredibly flattering that God chooses champions and allows an adversary to oppose them. Because ultimately, when you give someone freedom, it implies risk. And this is true in any discussion of the relationship between suffering and evil and why God allows it. As God allows the freedom of choice, and you can see it for the Satan, and you can also see it in, the, in, in Job, when God allows the freedom of choice, there is also risk. Okay, I talked about um, my, my older two sons uh, driving and going around. And when, we, when they first got their licenses and we were paying a significant amount of money for um, insurance, um, there, there is a considerable risk okay, in giving them that freedom. And it also reminds me of the risk that my parents took, who are here, um, in letting me drive. Okay? And I think, I think I actually got in a bunch of, I know, actually I know, I got in a bunch of accidents and some of them I didn't tell them about. <laughs> because, because again, freedom implies risk. Actually, one, one of them was, yeah. I won't, I won't, you don't, you don't need to know the details. I just had to pay some money on the side in order to, uh, in order to, uh, in order to take care of it. Okay. But freedom implies risk. Okay. When you give someone freedom, there is a risk that it will be abused and that the, that, uh, bad choices will be made. And certainly for God in the garden of Eden gave Adam and Eve freedom to be able to decide. And that entailed a certain amount of risk and there was a downside to it, and that downside occurred. And so in any discussion of freedom, a freedom, a free, a free, a freedom of will, there is a risk involved. Okay, let's talk more about the accuser now. The accuser attacks mankind's character. That's my second point. The nature of the adversary is to make accusations, right? That's what an accuser does. In verse 9 it says, Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Now the nature of the accuser is to lie, but the lie is always based on a truth. And in fact, you'll notice here, there is actually no lie. <laughs> I don't think there's a lie here. I think everything that Satan is saying about Job and about God here is true. It's a fact. I think it is true that God has protected Job up to this point, has put a hedge around him and has blessed the work of his hands and has given him possessions. Okay. So those are all real things. In fact, if you look back in Genesis um, chapter four, okay. Um, Genesis three, when the snake talks to Eve, okay. When snake, the snake talks to Eve, it is a, uh, he says, did God really say, Right? He asks a question. Did God really say you cannot eat of any tree of the, in, in the garden? Okay? And it's a question, and it's based on something that's true. Now, here's the question then. What is the lie? Well, in this verse, in verse 9, have you, have you, does, God fear Job, does Job fear God for no reason? Um, the, the implication here is that Job is like Satan. Okay? Because Satan thinks only about himself. And what Satan is betting is that God's people, his children, only think about themselves first 
as well. Okay? And if you only think about yourself, then the only reason you believe in God is because he gives you good things. Right? That's why you believe in God. And so what Satan is betting on and has always bet on and bets on when he speaks to us is that we are like him and we think about ourselves first. And, and guess what? Satan's actually right, okay? Satan's right about that because we live in a fallen world and our instinct in our flesh is to think first and primarily about ourselves. And this is why so many people's faith is derided, is, is derailed by when suffering occurs because they, they lose something and they think, God, no longer bless me because it has to do some, with some unrighteousness in our part. And so throughout the New Testament, you're going to see instances of accusations, okay? In John chapter 8, and I don't have, I don't have time to go through a lot of it, but let me, let me just point to John 8, 44, okay? And, and Jesus is defending himself against the accusations of the Jews because he's made some claims about his legitimacy, okay? And then he's responding to these Jews who have accusations against him, and frankly, they want to kill him, right? They, they, want, to, they, they want to kill him. You, and he's responding to the Jews, and he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And throughout the book of John, you're going to see those kinds of lies kind of permeate the text, right? In fact, um, there is a lie that was brought up in our, in our Job pre-study in John chapter 9 where um, the disciples encounter a man who is born blind from birth and the question is asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And the theology that is implicit or really impl explicit in that question is it must have been something this man did or this man's parents did that deserved him to be born blind. Because there must be a link between God's blessing or cursing and someone's righteousness or unrighteousness. And the book of Job explores that connection. And the lie is that it's guaranteed that if you do something that's righteous, God will reward you. And it's guaranteed. Now, it definitely is a principle. But this whole book is dedicated to what happens when that theology falls apart, when it doesn't work anymore. And Satan is essentially saying, when that theology falls apart, the people that say they love you, they won't love you anymore. And so for our sharing time today, the question that I want us to probe is, what messages have you received that might come from the accuser? Because you know what? Throughout this book, you won't see any more mention of Satan. And yet, I will propose to you that he's not gone, okay? Satan is still present in the rest of this book, okay? And it probably isn't too much of a stretch that he is somewhat present in the voices of these three friends that come to Job, okay? Because again, this is a rap battle and it's Job versus his three friends. Um, and it's not exactly clear. We're going to have to figure out how is it that Satan kind of his, his lies permeate the accusation of his friends. And it's not going to be easy. But I will give you some hints. Number one, there will always be a tone, okay, a tone of suspicion in the voice of the accuser, okay, because the first thing that Satan 
says, or the second thing that Satan says in response to God is, does Job fear you for no reason? So there's a suspicion about people's motivations, about the character of mankind's motivations, God's people's motivations. Just as there was a suspicion about God's motivations when the serpent talked to Adam and Eve. Okay, so suspicion will give you one indication. Here's another indication. The outcome of listening to messages from the accuser will not draw you closer to God and to other people, and even to recognizing yourself. It will distance you from God and from other people. So that's another indication that you may be hearing the message of the adversary. And I just wanted to give some examples um, for myself of when I've heard the accuser's voice. Okay. So for instance, uh, one example is I'll have, <laughs> and this is, this is even hard to say, I'll, at times I'll have a rage fantasy about a person, right? This, the most obvious place is, you know, when I'm driving and someone cuts me off, I'll have a rage fantasy about a person. And then I'll, I'll have this voice in my head that goes, how can you think that as a pastor? <clears throat> what are you even doing? Um, and then other ones, and this one happens a lot. I'll forget um, to email someone in response or I'll forget to plan something and I'll be like, what are you doing? A church rises and falls on its leadership. And in this case, your church is falling <laughs> on your leadership, right? And I hear that voice. Um, and then if it's, uh, if it's someone close to me, for instance, like Judy, who reminds me to do something, right? And it's, I, I appreciate the reminders because I need those reminders. But that voice will also come along with the feeling of shame, of exposure, because it's like, not only is this church falling on my leadership, but someone else knows <laughs> that it's falling on my leadership. Um, and then lastly, um, when I scroll through social media, and even though I know this, I still scroll through social media. As I scroll through Facebook, for instance, or Instagram, I think to myself, man, I wish I, wish I could be like so-and-so. I wish I could have that aspect of someone else's life. And there's a kind of a feeling of, and it's not quite depression, right? But this feeling of kind of loss or disappointment or just kind of dissatisfaction with myself, right? And it doesn't, it doesn't actually lead me <laughs> to pray or want to know God. And so those are some possible messages that may come from the accuser. And I want to be clear too. I say may, because I don't know for certain. I want us to be careful. I don't know for certain. And I also, also recognize that when the accuser speaks to you, he does so through your own personality. So the very things that are strong about you, so my strength is I, I think critically, um, and I have, a, I have a strong conscience, right? And so I know that the accuser can use that strong conscience and critical spirit because it's easy for me to find fault in myself and in other people. He can definitely use that as an opportunity to speak messages that alienate me from other people and from God. And so you can start, you can be thinking about some of those things. Now to my last point, that the Satan's unrighteousness infects others. Now the question is, why does God offer up Job and why does Satan accept the bet? Okay. Why is it so important to, for Satan to accept this bet? Well, if you think about it, the whole idea of having a contest, even like especially in sports, sports represent something about us, right? They represent something about us. So for me, as a Warriors fan, when the, when the Golden State Warriors, when they lose, I say we lose, right? If you're a fan, you say we lose because you identify with your champion, 
Okay, you identify something with your champion. And this is also why celebrity culture will always be a reality, right? Celebrity culture is always going to be a part of who we are because it also de they also dealt with celebrity culture in the ancient Near East because there are people that we look up to and are champions for us. And God and Satan recognize that. They're like, hey, you know what? I'm going to pick a champion, and that champion is Job, and he's going to re represent humanity, okay? He's going to represent humanity, and how he stands or falls is going to also uh, play forward for the rest of humanity. Because if Job falls, and, and let's face it too, when Satan fell, because he is an angel that has fallen, there were angels that accompanied him, okay? Because Satan is a kind of champion. And Satan is a champion today because his unrighteousness also infects others because it works both ways, right? And just as the voices, when you listen to the voices in your head, it doesn't just affect yourself. It also affects other people because you live out of those voices in your head. When I yell at my kids, it affects them. Okay, and that infection carries forward and will carry forward to my children's children and their children's children because those habits and sin patterns replicate. And the good news is righteousness also is infectious. And so if you turn back to verse 5. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. So what we see here is Job burns offerings because his righteousness covers the unrighteousness of his children. So there's something about righteousness that also infects other people. And if you look at the end of the book of Job, and this is a spoiler, okay? This is a spoiler. But Job also offers burnt offerings for his friends, okay? So both at the beginning and at the end, Job, what Job does doesn't change. He continues to offer burnt offerings for the unrighteous because he is God's champion. And the righteousness of Job infects others for good. And so what is it for us then? Who is that for us? We have a defender in the truth on our behalf. We have the man and God, Jesus, whom God was not afraid to make a target. And God made him a target of all of Satan's schemes, of suffering, of humiliation, and left him alone. And through the death and suffering of Jesus, through God making him that target, he was God's champion who suffered to the point of death and then rose again to life. And so you have a defender who was able to take all of Satan's schemes and be killed as a result. And so how do we live that out today? Well, we are able now today to be able to recognize and acknowledge what Satan's schemes are. So if you are receiving messages today that are about you being worthless or terrible or unloved, you have a defender on your behalf who says in Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You cannot be condemned. You are not guilty. You do not have to be ashamed because of what Christ has accomplished for you on the cross because he is God's champion who infects us with righteousness. So as Satan and as Adam 
allow the rest of the world to be infected with unrighteousness. Jesus is the one who infects with righteousness, and we have his defense. So you can pray specifically that there is now no condemnation. You can acknowledge specifically what the accusation is and claim Jesus' truth. And that's the reality of what it means to be a Christian. And that's the reality that we're going to explore as we enter into this book, to talk about the accusations, to talk about how we defend against them. Okay, and the mystery that goes with it and the beauty that goes with it. Church, let's pray together. Father God, we celebrate what you have accomplished in our behalf. We also mourn um, the depravity and the pain and the disappointment and the loss um, that has occurred in this world. Yesterday, many of us remembered um, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the tragedy of that day. And Lord, would you, um, would you, would your spirit pervade in that forgiveness and mourning and sadness knowing that no one is immune from Satan's schemes, that no one is immune from violence and from pain and from suffering and disappointment and loss. So Lord, would we fix our eyes on you, the champion, who have triumphed on our behalf, who is not afraid to be the target of all of Satan's schemes and evil and has given us new life in him. May we celebrate and remember him most of all, in the midst of the sadness and the hurt and the pain and the death and the disappointment. Would you expose the lies and the messages um, of the accuser so that we may defend them with the truth? We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.